0: Father, as we attempt to wrap our minds around some of the issues, both historically and uh, now currently in the relationships with the Muslim people, I pray that you will be with us and guide with the presence of your spirit in our discussion this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. We just got started last Sabbath into... The question, the first of the five questions, uh, you recall five key questions, the first one being, who are we as Seventh-day Adventists? And it's my conviction, and this conviction has been sharpened by my interaction in the Muslim world, that we have sort of lost, uh, within the Adventist community, we've sort of lost uh, really what our, what our true identity and what our true uh, a role is in the end time of history, because as you interact in the Muslim world, uh, you cannot use the simple traditional "we're the true church" approach that we have traditionally done in evangelism, and uh, you you need to approach the Muslim world respectfully, as you've picked up from our discussion so far. You need to approach the Muslim world with an understanding of some of the background to current um, uh, events, current uh, reactions or interactions uh, between Islam and the West and and so forth. So if you wonder why we're sort of taking time on what I've tried to sketch out on the board, and I, I, I figured, well... The, maybe the best use of time is to just, just let me kind of summarize it out here on the, on the, on the board and uh, we'll try to summarize it and then I do want to get on into the uh, Children of Abraham discussion uh, also uh, this morning, which really is the second question, who are they? Because it's not only our understanding of our role and our purpose in the end time of history, but also how do we look on the other and how we view the other is critical in uh, how we build relationships, uh, whether we are going to interact for, for violence or for peace, for understanding uh, and uh, uh, mutual, mutual encouragement spiritually. So let's try and quickly uh, just look at this and what the meaning of this is for the question of, of who we are as Seventh-day Adventists. First of all, the, I and, and this is summarized in the in the handout uh, that uh, you got last week. But this kind of puts it in a in a timeline graphic. So, in the early church, you remember we had um, uh, the early church did not espouse violence as a strategy of mission. You may see that sounds well. Uh, that's that's obvious. Christianity should not espouse violence as a strategy of mission. The problem is, when we come down to the Christendom shift, Christianity did intentionally espouse violence as a strategy of mission and coercion. So, in the early church, it was nonviolence. There was a respectful competition of faith, and that's a quote I've taken out of an article by by Alan Kreider, which he discusses the issue of, of how violence came into Christian mission. He says they had a respectful competition of faith. There was spiritual power. Uh, There was changed lives. It was in house churches. Uh, They had no church buildings. Um, And I realize there's a risk in summarizing like this. You miss all the variances and the details, but uh, we're trying to get the big picture here. But beginning in 313, uh, with Constantine and subsequent uh, um, leaders, uh, we have what is termed this Christendom shift. Uh, You have the church councils, but first of all, you have in, in 323, and I have noted that here, in 323, Constantine issued an edict saying there will be no more house churches. House churches are outlawed. People could not meet in homes. Uh, from there on, he was forcing them into church buildings financed by state money. Uh, <clears throat> there was uh, so we have church buildings coming in, we have a focus on orthodoxy um, uh, through the church councils and uh, the article that Sigvi attached a week ago to the handout uh, details some of that how <clears throat> how really theology and discussion of Of theology was raised to such an esoteric level, uh, and uh, you know discussion of detail, fine points, and this was the Greek, the Greek contextual. Some have actually called this the Greek contextualization of the gospel. uh, That that the church got caught up in things that were not applicable to daily life, and so the common person, uh, these things had very little relevance. Also, there was violence involved with, with these church councils. It estimated over 25,000 people were killed just around the church councils themselves. Uh, uh, and, and the focus was away from changed lives and spiritual power to simply defining orthodoxy and then e- enforcing that and, and coercing by state power uh, what was decided was orthodox. So um, the church became socially acceptable, whereas before it had not been socially acceptable, it was a persecuted entity. It was actually in 380, under Theodosius I, that uh, coercion began of really to be evident in coercion of, of uh, Orthodox belief. Uh, <clears throat> that was an agreement between Theodosius I and, I believe, Ambrose of Milan. During this time, what happened is you began to see certain groups splitting off from mainline Christianity. This would be Western Church primarily, but it developed into a controversy between the Western Church and the Eastern Church also. So you have in 431, actually, you have the Nestorian Church, you have Nestorius being excommunicated over a fine point on the nature of Christ. And he refused to accept the, the term Theoticus, which is the Mary as the mother of God. And he could not accept that. And so there was a, it was political as well as, as, as theological. And uh, he was excommunicated at the Council of Ephesus in 431. So you have these major blocks. First, the Armenian in the 4th century church basically split off. And then the Church of the East, the Nestorian Church, which was a huge section of Christianity at that time, was excommunicated. You also had, and we'll see this a little later in the uh, in the presentation on the uh, children of Abraham, you have the what were called Hanifs, and this is referred to in Islamic literature, actually, of the time, of people who were excommunicated by the mainline church here, took refuge in the deserts of arabia northern arabia and you have references to this both in christian historians are refer to it as well as islamic historians and in islamic historians they refer to them as the hanifs that they were trying to preserve a monotheistic faith a faith of abraham uh and uh they did not involve themselves in local tribal disputes. They were, they were, their character was known to be above repute and so forth, which was an interest to me when I first came on that because we have traditionally uh, assigned the church in the wilderness of Revelation 12 to people like the Walden Seas and the mountains of Europe, uh, but to also understand that out in the even pre-Islamic, times out in the deserts of Arabia, there were also people who were trying to hold on to a, a, a Abrahamic faith, that's probably the best way to describe it, uh, against the idolatry of the time, uh, which was quite rampant in the area. You, have, you had the Nabataeans and Petra uh, and other forms of idolatry. So this forms the context, this really, this Christendom shift, which um, really is a, a deviation from the original understanding of followers of Jesus and what that ought to mean and what that ought to be. Um, and uh, a, co- a coercion of faith being a, a, a key, key thing in this. This forms the context and, and the various groups being excommunicated and and so forth, and the discussions over esoteric theology, the points of theology, that forms the context for the rise of a very simple, uh, direct message of there is one God and there is a day of judgment. Really the primary two messages of, of Muhammad that he, he began to preach in Arabia in uh, actually 610, I've listed 622 because that's the date that uh, of the Hijra, the uh, uh, fleeing from Mecca to Medina, and uh, is the date for Islamic the Islamic calendar. So that's the context for the rise of Islam. But more, even more importantly, for our point, our question of who are we as Seventh Day Adventists? I think too often we forget uh, some of that early history, and then. The subsequent history, and really, we we sort of assume ourselves in the Christian heritage, and when we do that, we carry a lot of baggage with us. You see, that in the Muslim world is is very known, much known, and uh, and when we landed in Libya, I had no idea of of of, of this, and uh, did not realize that kind of load that I was carrying just by who I look like and what I am as a, as a Westerner and, and a Christian. Would you come on down to the Crusades? Uh, and we, we have this quotate, quotation. We looked at one or two quotations last week. Uh, this is one from Stephen Runciman that's on the screen, who uh, I think his history of the Crusades are probably the kind of the classic history of the Crusades. But let's look at it. The massacre at Jerusalem, and this is in 1099, when uh, the Franks, the uh, Crusaders, entered Jerusalem, they, they were so incensed uh, that, and, and, you know, I don't know, excited or whatever, they slaughtered every man, woman, child they came, came across. People taking refuge, the Jews taking refuge in synagogues, uh, the synagogues were entered and, 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 and they were slaughtered. Muslims took refuge in the mosque. The Dome of the Rock was pillaged. Uh, and, and, and there was actually no Jew or Christian left in the city when they got finished. The account uh, just before this paragraph, it says that when uh, Raymond uh, went the next morning around the temple, the Dome of the Rock uh, area, He actually waded through blood and bodies up to his knees. Uh, The massacre at Jerusalem profoundly impressed all the world. No one can say how many victims it involved, but it emptied Jerusalem of its Muslim and, and Jewish inhabitants. Sorry, I said Christians, but Muslim and Jewish inhabitants. Many even of the Christians were horrified by what had been done and amongst the Muslims who had been ready to hitherto accept the Franks as another factor in the tangled politics of the time, there was henceforward a clear determination that the Franks must be driven out. It was this bloodthirsty proof of Christian fanaticism that recreated the fanaticism of Islam. When later, wiser Latins in the East sought to find some basis on which Christian and Muslim could work together, the memory of the massacre stood always in their way. So you say, well, that happened thousands of years, a thousand years ago. What, what's the big deal? Come on, let's, let's move on. But in the Muslim mind, this is still real. I, 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 I kind of think sometimes we in the Western world, anything older than 50 years old, uh, back, we, we think is ancient history and we sort of forget it. Uh, Muslim has a, a little longer memory of history. And so that's why I've I've put here bloodthirsty fanaticism and aggressive and backward. That's the Muslim understanding from the Crusades, that it was a fanatic, bloodthirsty, aggressive, backward uh, people that were were mounting the Christians that came in uh, with the Crusades. They went on up to the last one, which, which amounted to nothing in 1464, 1465. Uh, then, of course, you have the—so uh, so this, this is a watershed point. It's a turning point. Uh, it has impact until today in our relationships in the Muslim world. And if we don't understand that and we move into the Muslim world— um, Without this understanding, we carry that baggage. And uh, we, we have to do something to, in to, building relationships, to counteract that with, uh, if we understand uh, this kind of background. Um, then you have, of course, the, the Reformation coming in. And it's referred to in some circles as the Magisterial <laughs> Reformation. Uh, in counter-distinction to the Radical Reformation, which came in a little bit later. Uh, During this time, we have the Waldensees, and I put a dotted line. Uh, Most histories that you look at will say the Waldensees started in about 11th, 12th century, that that's their first of their... we know about them. If you read Ellen White in The Great Controversy, And the chapter on the Waldensees, she says, and she doesn't specifically name the Waldensees. It's in the same paragraph she's mentioning the Waldensees. But then she said, for a thousand years in the mountains of Europe, there were witnesses uh, to to the truth, uh, to the biblical faith. So that's why I've put this dotted line that apparently... Back as early as 6th, 7th, 8th century, uh, in the mountains of Europe, there, the, truth, the true biblical faith was being kept alive, and it, began, it was expressed by the Waldenses uh, openly from about the 12th century up to uh, around the 16th century when they basically were almost annihilated uh, by the mainline churches. But they, you see, this, this begins to form a second line, in other words. This is the main line uh, Christian heritage. This forms sort of a second line that then feeds into the Radical Reformation. And you have a chart in the handout that was uh, given out last week, um, which, which illust- uh, illustrates basically the Radical Reformation uh, um, primarily the, the primary name associated with the Radical Reformation are the Anabaptists. But the Adventists are, are, are basically listed on that chart, and that's from Wikipedia, uh, uh, if, if you trust Wikipedia. <laughs> um, uh, but I thought it was interesting, anyway, that they actually slot the Adventists within the Radical Reformation heritage. Um, So, But it also has a dotted line from the Reformation, primarily from the Methodist uh, line. So we come down to this question of who then are we as Seventh-day Adventists? And my interaction in the Muslim world has, as I said, just sharpened my understanding that we must begin to realize um, that we cannot position ourselves simply in this line of Christian heritage, which is a line of coercion of faith. It's a line of of, uh, nitpicking theology uh, uh, around the church councils. Uh, It's it's a line of bloodthirsty fanaticism in the Muslim's mind. Uh, And uh, it's a line of colonialism. We come down to more current uh, days. You have the Sykes-Picot agreement in 1914, which uh, uh, highlighted, which uh, basically uh, was a secret agreement of how the Middle East would be divided up among the colonial powers without any input from the Arab world, Arab Muslim world. And so the reason I state this is now uh, trying to understand the current tensions and current attitudes that time after time the, the Muslim world well first of all the Muslim world suffers uh, around this time the the defeat of the Ottoman Empire or the collapse of the Ottoman Empire so the, the when you had Islam as the center of learning through through this period of history and now it is being dominated by those who come from the line of bloodthirsty fanaticism and backward and so forth See, the Muslim minds said, what's happening here? Why? Why is this happening? And uh, they, time after time, they were promised to have a part in what, the, what would happen politically with the countries in the Middle East. And time after time, they were, they were not included in the discussions and decisions were made by Western powers. Uh, this Sykes-Picot Agreement and then the Balfour Declaration, which basically states that that uh, the Jews uh, have a right to a a country and to their own nation, which I wouldn't deny. But uh, when you look at it from the Muslim understanding, uh, to to it, uh, they look at this and say, "Well, you know, we weren't included in any of this discussion," and. Uh, The Middle East being divided up by the colonial powers, uh, without any input from the from the Arabs, and then you have, uh, of course, the establishment of Israel in 1948, again without consultation with any of the Arab uh, powers. Um, You also have here uh, an interesting dynamic, and that is that the establishment of Israel is seen by the majority of the evangelical Christian community as a a fulfillment of prophecy. As, as God ordained and uh, we need to make our position as Adventists more openly known that we do not support that, that position but uh, that also feeds into the entire understanding in the Muslim world that that Christianity is simply riding on the back of the colonial power okay and colonial dominance so one You as an American or I as an American step into the Muslim world. That's baggage we carry, you see. And uh, I put 1967. 1967 was kind of a turning point also. Uh, We were in Libya at the time and were evacuated by U.S. Air Force. Um, And the defeat of the Arab armies in the 67 war was really the turning point that in the Arab world, they gave up on pan-Arabism as a solution and, and turned to, to violence uh, and uh, more terrorist types of activities. They said diplomacy and, and so on isn't working. The only solution is to, to use uh, force. But back to our point of the first question is, who are we as Seventh-day Adventists? And this radical Reformation line... And uh, line out of the clear back from the uh, excommunication of the Nestorian Church. By the way, the Nestorian Church, uh, their Sabbath keeping was prominent in the early uh, Church of the East. Um, these Hanifs, the Waldenses, through the Anabaptists, Mennonites, and so forth. Primarily, they. What, what was the? What were the main points in this radical Reformation that? we could consider ourselves as a, as a heritage for, for ourselves. One is that the church visible and the church invisible are one. Um, <laughs> it's interesting that that is a controversy in the Adventist theological field today. Uh, if you'll pick up uh, a rec- uh, book that was published a year or two ago by the Biblical Research Institute... toward a a theology of the remnant, you will read some articles in there who say that the church visible is the only true remnant, not the church invisible also. In other words, those out there who have not yet openly proclaimed but are following the light that they have, no, those are not part of the remnant. You will find articles in that book to that effect. Fortunately, the conclusion of the book is much more inclusive and saying that no, as the radical reformers said, the church visible and the church invisible are all part of God's end-time people. So it's, it's interesting that it's a, it's a, it's a um, hot potato issue even in, in Adventist circles today. Adult baptism, <clears throat> they rejected the institutional hierarchy of separation of the clergy from the, from the laity. Uh, much more a, uh, a priesthood of the believers, very strong on separation of church and state. This is in constant distinction to the Magisterial Reformation, uh, the mainline Protestant churches, who, who did not espouse a separation of church and state, many of them. Uh, and nonviolence, uh, very much a, a particularly exemplified by the Mennonites uh, and their their peace uh, Position on on peace uh, rather than violence. My point is, and let's get to the slide then, summarize, and then we'll move on, and we'll take a moment for any questions or observations.
1: Did I make a comment on yeah. on the, on your slide there? Sure. Yeah. I just wonder if what if one could if one could say that it wasn't necessary. If, you know, he says that Christ, uh, the bloodthirsty uh, proof of Christian fanaticism that we created the fanaticism of Islam. You know, I, I would be inclined to say that Christian fanaticism created the fanaticism of Islam. Because I don't really think you could make a very strong case for fanaticism in Islam that much before that time. You know, the concept of jihad, the holy war, is a concept that Christianity had, had developed already before the rise of Islam. And in some ways that concept is taken over within Islam. But I just think that he could have said uh, created rather than recreated, because I think that, is, that would be more appropriate. Now, I would like to put a couple more dates on your timeline. <laughs> You, can put you know, 15, that, sure. no, fifteen f- uh, fourteen fifty-three, when the Muslims—I think that is the correct uh, date—fifteen forty-three, 1453, when the Muslims take Constantinople. Constantinople becomes a mirror image of the fall of Jerusalem. You know, the, the, that's where, where, the, where Muslim fanaticism plays itself out—the the bloodshed, the the, the carnage that you've seen in Jerusalem, you will see in Istanbul in 1543. And then when the Muslims are expelled from Spain in 1492, that's another date in 1492, then Christian fanaticism is really, you know, riding high, because they will expel the Muslims and they will coerce the Jews, you know, like Muslims had never done. So many of the Jews had to flee, or they had to convert, or they had to die. You know, so there are many, many pieces here, but there is a staple, a staple sort of ideology in Christianity which is militant and 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 uh, uh, cruel. You know that that one cannot ignore, running through here. And then, in my view, there seems to be you know that there is a, a bit of a degeneracy in Islam in the Ottoman era.
0: In the the. Um Taking of Constantinople in 1453, um, it is reported that some of the Christians in Constantinople chanted the phrase "Better the better the turban of the Sultan than the tarbaza of the Pope." Uh, in other words, they actually welcomed the because they knew and 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 when when Islam came into the Middle East, uh, maybe just an added comment that the because the Eastern Church had been excommunicated i I've I noted in even in an article in Encyclopedia Britannica the statement that there were more bishops of the Eastern Church, and this was a large movement a large mission movement. Uh, They even are, there's remnants of the Nestorian Church in China. Uh, So they had a wide influence. But there were more bishops of the Eastern Church killed by the Byzantine Empire than by the Muslims later, which is uh, rather interesting. And many of these people, when Islam came into the Middle East, they actually welcomed the Islamic rule because now they had freedom. They had freedom to preach what they wanted to preach. Under the Byzantine rule, they did not have freedom to preach what they felt they should preach. But the Muslims didn't care. Uh, They didn't care what was preached in the church on, on Sunday morning or whenever. So they actually welcomed the Muslim rule. Well, if we're going to get to the next thing, is there any other comments or questions on this? Uh, We need to have some time. Harvey? Just a minute, Harvey. There's a mic.
2: I'm intrigued with Adventism as part of the Radical Reformation. So many of our theologians have been trained in the schools of the Magisterial Reformation. And I think the difference of our roots versus the classic reformation has caused us a lot of problems not just in our heritage with Muslims but in our own self-identity
0: do you want to expand on that
2: yeah Uh, I think much of the battle of law and grace comes out of not knowing our roots Um, we are trying to constantly bridge this Um, much of I say much the little bit that I know of from that uh, where we took from the Anabaptists, uh, is constantly being threatened from the more classic Reformation.
0: There's a lot more that we could say on this, this particular issue. Um, let me summarize it this way on, on the slide that's, that's here. Very quickly, we have uh, Christianity, Islam, Islam, You could list the other major religions, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, and so forth. In Christianity, we have basically Catholic and Protestant. And under this, we have many. And somewhere down here, we have placed ourselves uh, under the Protestant uh, line. Uh, my position from, from looking at this history and from un, uh, 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 thinking about why was the Advent movement established? Why, why did God ordain the Advent movement then? In the late 1700s, early 1800s, when the Advent movement began uh, and was spread, um, became almost global, Actually, Joseph Wolfe, even in in Muslim lands, and uh, uh, Lacunza in South America, as well as William Miller in North America. So, do you think God looked down and said, well, there's, what, 300 and some odd Protestant denominations. Uh, We need one more. I don't think so. You know, we we have used the term a prophetic movement, uh, an end time movement, uh, etc., and all of what we've looked at in Revelation uh, with with Sigvet, um, and 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 you know what's happening in the cosmic conflict and so forth. Um, it seems to me that we have sort of truncated our identity by simply assuming ourselves as one of the many Protestant denominations. That really what God had in mind was more like this. That the the Adventist movement is a worldwide global, spiritual, end time, prophetic, yes, use all of those adjectives, movement that is calling people to be ready for the coming of Jesus. And that's, that's our kind of the end point, and may seem, well, that's kind of obvious and a rather simple deduction out of all of this that we've gone through. But I, I hope it's, with the history sort of reinforces that. And it, is, it has been impressed upon me because of my interaction in the Muslim world. Because to go to the Muslim world and say, we drew the circles the other day, you know, about the kingdom, and uh, that the traditional mission uh, towards Islam has been to move them from the Islamic circle into the Adventist circle or the Christian circle, rather than moving them into the kingdom circle, and then looking at how we can relate with each other uh, creatively. But to ask a Muslim to simply join one of these many Protestant denominations I mean our our traditional sermon on the true church for example is totally created and geared towards a Christian audience it really doesn't have any relevance in the Muslim setting Um, so we have to rethink who we are and how we're going to relate to call Muslims into this this movement that is preparing people for the coming of Jesus. So when a Muslim says to me, are you a Christian? I don't say yes. Because if I say yes, I am immediately assuming all of this baggage of Christendom. And that's immediately what would come to their minds. So... I, I have said, and I realize this is subject to misunderstanding, but I will say it again, that if I say I'm a Christian to a Muslim, I am denying my faith. Because that's not who I am. What comes to their mind is not who I am. Okay? So I will say, well, I'm an Adventist. And uh, they don't know what that means, of course. So it immediately gives me an opportunity then to explain and I've even gone... I've, I've presented this whole history like I have here in a mosque, in a Muslim setting. And they look at this and say, wow, that makes sense. They understand this apostasy of Christianity and the Crusades and this whole history. And when I say we're not a part of that, and when I say to them that my spiritual ancestors were persecuted and killed by the same entity that killed Muslims. You know, it rings. Because this line, who killed the Waldens, who persecuted the Waldenses, Anabaptists and so forth. Even some of the, even some of the Protestant elements used force against some of these People so, when, I, when, when we point this out in the Muslim setting, they immediately say, wow, now we understand. And they can begin to connect and say, yeah, we believe in the end of time. We believe in the day of judgment. So, when I, when I answer them, I said, I, I will say I'm a, I'm a member of a group that uh, believes in the coming of Jesus. Aisha al messiah using the Muslim term. And... Uh, they will immediately respond, Well, we believe in the coming of Aisha al also. Now, the details are different, yes. And I, at this point, in my interaction with a Muslim, I wouldn't want to get involved in, in, in the different so the, the details. I'm trying to establish a relationship on the big points. <clears throat> I will go on to say that I, I'm a member of a group who believes that the day of judgment is near that we need to live our lives in preparation for that day. Wow. And immediately establishes a connection, you see, because these are things that they're concerned. It's a Muslim who said to one of our missionaries, he was studying with a small group of, of Muslim men in the country of Yemen, actually. And this Muslim fellow came on to the discussion, and he said, You know, I lay awake at night. Sometimes I can't sleep. He says, because uh, I'm afraid of the day of judgment. Now, when I heard that story, I, I had two reactions. Number one was a rebuke to myself. What do I lay awake at night about? My bank account? Church politics? Huh? How I've been treated by the organization or something like that? yeah. That's what I've laid awake at night occasionally about. Have I ever laid awake at night about the day of judgment? I mean, here's a man who is concerned about his eternal salvation. Now he has—he doesn't have the hope and the understanding of, of a faith in Jesus that can 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 free him from that fear. But the second thought—my second thought was. Wow, that that tells us one of the touch points that we ought to be focusing on with the Muslim. If that's in fact pretty widely held, and I've come to discover that it is in Islam, then there's a spiritual need that we ought to be focusing on. You know, do we have an answer to a fear of the Day of Judgment? I hope so. Not just hope so. Yes, we do. Very definitely. So we are not just a Protestant uh, denomination. We are an end-time prophetic spiritual movement with a specific mission of proclaiming and demonstrating the truth of God's way of winning the cosmic conflict, calling people from all traditions and backgrounds to be a part of this end-time movement. So that, I think, uh, I'd like to sort of conclude the discussion of who are we as Seventh-day Adventists. I think it's not only important in our interface with the Muslim world, I think it's important in our interface with other faith traditions as well. The second major question is who are they? Who is the other? And that's a question, again, that could be whatever setting you're in. Who is the other? Hindu, Buddhist, Confucianist, Taoist, Muslim, secular postmodern? Who is the other? And to address that question, I'd like to move then into the handout that you have for today. And we're not going to get clear through it, um, uh, but we'll, uh, we'll get as far as we can. And then pick up on it two weeks from today, okay? My original schedule of what I would like to cover, I'm uh, at least one and a half sessions behind, so... <laughs>
1: That's okay.
0: Anyway, when I teach the class at Andrews, uh, I always have trouble. I I, I I get telling stories, and and uh, the time just goes by. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, in the name of God, the Merciful and the Compassionate. Let's look at the lines of the children of Abraham, because it is my understanding that this forms what I'm willing to call the heritage of Islam, the background, the spiritual heritage of Islam even. Abraham's descendants were divided into two main groups. You have on the right-hand side the Hebrew people, which we're quite familiar with in our biblical understanding and study. Sarah bore Isaac in her old age. God had many messengers in this line. But there is also a second line that is mostly ignored in our study of, of Scripture, and that is the children of the East. Hagar bore Ismail, and after Sarah died, Abraham took Keturah, who bore him six sons, Rather interesting that Abraham and Sarah were already old, and figured that's why they weren't having any children? And then Abraham goes on and uh, sires further children with other other women. But there were messengers in this line. Uh, it would be my my position. They may not be messengers that are in the biblical canon, but I think we'll see that there were people that God used in this particular line of the children of the East. <clears throat> in Genesis 16, we have the story beginning of Ismael and Hagar. Ismael was Abraham's firstborn son. Now, we could go into some detail on that story. Um, you recall the, the promise had been made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that uh, the, all nations of the world would be blessed by his descendants. Well, it didn't look too promising at the time, uh, did it? Because there were no descendants. And so they, they, there was no promise that the descendants would be, how those descendants would come, and would they be Sarah's children, Sarah and Abraham's children? How would the descendants happen? And in the culture of the day, it was a common practice that the handmaid or the slave girl could bring children into the line of the family. And so that's why Sarah offers Hagar. Uh, She becomes pregnant. Uh, When she becomes pregnant, she became proud and despised Sarah. Uh, You can imagine a slave girl now elevated to the standard of, to the level of of, of bearing the the heir of the patriarch. And uh, that obviously created difficulties. And Sarah, it says, um, treated her so cruelly, this is my translation is New English, then Sarah treated Hagar so cruelly that she ran away. She is confronted by a representative from heaven, the angel of the Lord. Uh, The angel of the Lord met Hagar at a spring in the desert. Now, this is the first instance that we have on record of uh, an angel of the Lord appearing directly to someone. Someone. He says to her, where where have you come from? Where are you going? And she says, I'm running away from my mistress. He says to her, go back and be her slave. Or some translations, go back and submit to her. Now, what is the meaning of the word Islam? Submission. Submission. So it's just an interesting uh, little point, I think. I not, don't need to make too much of it. But uh, that here, and, and Islam traces its heritage back to Ismail and Hagar. Hmm? That uh, the Hagar was told that the answer to your problems, Hagar, is not to run away, but is to submit. And 1.4, 1.5, depending on which figure you, you look at, a billion Muslims today espouse a religion of submission that traces its heritage back to Ismael and Hagar. So, he says, I will give you many descendants that no one will be able to count them. You are going to have a son. You will name him Ismael. Now, if I want one of my children to to pay attention, I say in Arabic to them, Esma. Is that right, Nabil? Listen up. Pay attention. Hmm? So here's Esma. Pay attention. Hear, listen. Hell, God. God pays attention, Hagar. God hears your suffering. God understands your suffering. Here is a message of comfort to Hagar. And we haven't often looked at it that way. But is it essentially a message of comfort to Hagar? Go back and submit, but I'm going to make, don't worry, this son that will be born, his name will remind you that I understand and I hear and I listen. Ellen White and, uh, mentions just the phrase that this is it was a constant reminder of God's mercy, the name Ishmael. Um, <clears throat> because the Lord has heard your cry of distress. But your son will live like a wild donkey. He will be against everyone and everyone against him. He will live apart from all his relatives. Now, we like to focus on that one. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, that's 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 why all the problems in the Middle East today. Hmm? Uh, look, this wild donkey guy. He started it all. Well, I would recommend to you um, a book, and I don't have it written on the slide anywhere. Arabs in the Shadow of Israel by Tony Malouf, Lebanese. Hmm? And or he goes into some detail on and uh, a very very well done study of this whole story and uh, uh, the uh, implications and how this was a message of comfort. But he says this particular phrase of he will be like a wild donkey. We have sort of imposed our Western, you know idea of what a wild donkey is. You know, stubborn, uh, stupid, you know, whatever. But he says, if you look at it from the culture of the day, this is basically saying he will never be subjected. He will never be a slave. He will always live free as the wild, as the donkey lives in the wild. Think of the, uh, it's, it's too bad that cigarette advertising has taken over some images. But the Marlboro Man, okay, and the cowboy and the wild horse. Um, we think the wild, we don't, we don't look down on the wild horse. We, we would look at that as a symbol of freedom, of, of uh, you know, of, of no one is, is confining the wild horse. And it, it, it's a positive image, well, that's the image that is intended here. You are a slave, Hagar. Your descendants will never be slaves. It's interesting that the descendants of Hagar did not become slaves, the descendants of Isaac became slaves. The son of the promise. Rather interesting. So your, your, his descendants will, will, will always be free. Uh, and then in the translation, he will live apart from his relatives or he will be against everyone. Again, uh, there is reason to, to, to look at the translation that, that he will always live in front of his brethren. There will never be a time when your descendants will not be pre- have a presence and, 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 and be a force uh, in front of or in alongside or in the face of is, is perhaps a more literal translation of his brethren. So um, you would be interested in the explanation of that in, in this particular book. So here is a message of comfort to Hagar. The child was named perpetual reminder of God's mercy I will make a great nation of his descendants
1: could I make a comment on, on some sure. other resonances from, the, from this story yeah. you know the Shama you know the, the root word in, uh, that goes into the name of Ishmael is also the word that is in the basic monotheistic affirmation of you know in, 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 the, in the book of Deuteronomy the Shama the hero here is your Lord the Lord your God is one, or there is only I am the only only true God. So there is a resonance that way for monotheism. And then there is the resonance of Hagar's name. She is the stranger. The Gair, you know, Agar. That's the she is the stranger. She is the uh, she is the sort of the epitome of the person who doesn't belong, who has no one looking out for them. And God is looking out for her, you know. Because religion has often divided humanity in the chosen, the elect, and those who are not elect. But here here God notices those who are not, as it were, the elect. They are the strangers, they do not have rights, they are the most vulnerable in society. So if you sort of anchor Islamic uh, theology in that story, then, of course, that is adding to our arsenal of speaking well about God. Yeah. Because God is a God who looks out for the stranger, and Hagar is the quintessential you know, stranger, the quintessential vulnerable person. And she happens also to be the first one in the, in Bi- in the Bible, the first human being in the Bible, to give God a name. You are a seeing God. You are a God who sees. You know, so, these are, you know, things that could go into our arsenal of cosmic conflict theology and they also have tremendous ecumenical
0: potential. Thank you Sigvi for adding those details and very very appropriately. Later when uh, Isaac is born and there's um, you know controversy in the family and and Sarah insists that uh, Hagar and Ismail must leave. And uh, Abraham um, provides some things for them and sends them on their way. It's interesting, the Islamic, uh, uh, the Islamic story on this is that he actually went with them. In other words, Abraham and, and Hagar and Ismail went together, and that Ismail and, and Abraham actually built the, the Kaaba in Mecca. <clears throat> and uh, mm-hmm. as a, as a place of worship, but in the in the Torah account in Genesis, the angel says to Hagar later when she's in the desert, "Get to your feet, lift the child up, and hold him in your arms, because I will make of him a great nation." And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well full of water. She went and so forth. God was with the child. Interesting phrase. He uh, wasn't just this stubborn wild donkey, eh? God was with the child, and he grew up and lived in the wilderness of Paran. So, uh, so that's the beginning of the story, but I would propose that God's plan for these other children of Abraham, and, and I'm, I'm saying that from what our usual perspective is, we, we follow the line of Isaac, and we, we know all about that line and its history and so forth. But these other children of Abraham, which have sort of been forgotten from much of our understanding, I think God's plan for these children of Abraham was that they also would preserve truth. They would work in partnership with the children of Isaac in keeping the knowledge of God alive against the idolatry surrounding them. As traitors, they would carry the light of the knowledge of the true God to distant places. And uh, we have, uh, here's a Quran uh, um, quotation from Surah Al-Ankabut, Surah 29 and verse 27. A surah is a chapter or a section or chapter of, of the Quran. And they're named just as the books of the Bible. When you're talking with a Muslim and if you say Surah 29, they won't know what surah that is just like if I said to you, would you please look in your Bible in, in, in the book number 29, uh, you wouldn't know what book that is. So they memorize the names of the books just like we memorize the names of the books of the Bible. So An-Kabut is the name, and in verse 27, we gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and ordained among his progeny prophethood and revelation We granted him his reward in this life and he was in the hereafter of the company of the righteous. And in a commentary from Abdullah Yusuf Ali, Isaac was Abraham's son and Jacob his grandson, and amongst his progeny was included Ismail, the eldest son of Abraham. Each of these became a fountainhead of prophecy and revelation. Isaac and Jacob through Moses and Ismail through the prophet Muhammad. That's a Muslim understanding. Um, But just in conclusion, as our time is up, uh, a couple points here in Isaiah chapter 60 and verses 6 and 7 and also Isaiah 42 but we'll look at uh, Isaiah 60 verses 6 and 7 we have these, this verse great caravans of camels will come from Midian and Ephah they will come from Sheba bringing gold and incense who are Midian and Ephah Midian Keturah's son, exactly. Midian is the son of Keturah, son of Abraham by Keturah. And Ephah is Midian's son. They will come from Sheba. Where is Sheba? Ethiopia, southern Arabia. Okay? These people of the east, other children of Abraham. People will tell the good news of what the Lord has done. All the sheep of Kedar and Nebiath, who are Kedar and Nebiath, sons of Ismail. Nebiath is the first son of Ismail. And there are other sons of Ismail, of course, will be brought to you as sacrifices and offered on the altar to please the Lord. The Lord will make his temple more glorious than ever. Isaiah 60 is, we understand, a picture of people from all nations surrounding the throne of God bringing their praise to him in the new earth. The praise to God in, in the new earth will be incomplete without those from the Muslim world bringing their praise, bringing their unique praise, and it may look a little different like, than the praise in the university church, okay? Okay their unique praise will be brought and the mosaic of the picture of God, the mosaic of our understanding of God and who he is and how he has won this conflict will be complete only when there are representatives also from the Muslim world in heaven giving their unique praise and their unique understanding of how God has worked down through history and through them and together, all of us will bring make that praise to God complete. We'll pick up from here and carry on in two weeks. You want to remind next week we'll be in the uh, centennial complex? Okay. Thank you for being here and sharing in this discussion. Let's ask God to be with us as we, as we leave also. Father, go with us now. May we understand that we are your unique people in this end of time to prepare for the end of time and the coming of Jesus. And that there are those within the Muslim world also who are looking for the end of time, who are also committed to being ready. And may we together journey on this path in being ready to meet you. We thank you in your holy name. Amen.